Hello, my name is Nicole. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 10, 14 through 21. Clearly the Lord owns the sky, the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. But the Lord adored your ancestors, loving them and choosing the descendants that followed them. You, from all other people. And that's how things stand now. So circumcise your hearts and stop being so stubborn. Because the Lord your God is the God of all gods and the Lord of all lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God who doesn't play favorites and doesn't take bribes. He enacts justice for the orphans and widows, and he loves the immigrants, giving them food and clothing. That means you must also love immigrants because you were immigrants in Egypt. Revere the Lord your God. Serve him. Cling to him. Swear by his name alone. He is your praise, and he is your God the one who performed these great and awesome acts that you witnessed with your very own eyes. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is David. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed. But... It is the power of God for those of us who are being saved. It is written in scripture, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will reject the intelligence of the intelligent. Where are the wise? Where are the legal experts? Where are today's debaters? Hasn't God made the wisdom of the world foolish? In God's wisdom, he determined that the world wouldn't come to know him through its wisdom. Instead, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of preaching. Jews ask for signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. This is because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Kay. Thank you for standing, if you're able, to hear the gospel reading found in Luke 1, 46 through 55. Mary said, with all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God, my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, From now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. 
he has come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised our ancestors to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. The Gospel of the Lord. Would you remain standing with me as we pray this morning? And I asked Billy to put the Lord's Prayer on the screen so we might pray this prayer together. And I put it on the screen because we learned 26 different versions of it. And so I thought this might be helpful for us. Plus, I always get nervous that I'm going to forget a a line, um, which is really embarrassing as a pastor in front of everyone to forget a line of the Lord's Prayer. Um, So this is maybe more for me than for for anyone else. But if if you're with someone this morning or sitting near someone and you're comfortable grabbing someone's hand, would you be okay doing it? If you're not comfortable, it's totally okay in the midst of uh, all that's going on health-wise, it's okay, but I thought just as a sign of unity, we could maybe hold hands with somebody, again, only if you're comfortable. Let's pray this prayer together this morning. Our Father, who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it is done in heaven. Give us the bread we need for today and forgive us the ways we have wronged you just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. And don't lead us into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, New Life Downtown. It's great to see you. If you're new or newer, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Our lead pastor, Glenn Packiam, is preaching up at New Life North today. Uh, If you are watching online, if you're home and unable to be with us uh, embodied in person today, we love you, we miss you, we hope that you are doing well. We are four weeks into a five-month series entitled, Who is God? Uh, As Christians, we believe in one God, but we believe that one God exists forever in three persons, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so over the course of these several months, we're going to be looking at each person in turn, talking about what do we mean when we say God the Father? What do we mean when we say God the Son? What do we mean when we say God the Spirit? And we began four weeks ago with just sort of an introductory question, like why does this matter anyway? Who, after all, even needs God? And exploring some of the questions that our culture asks around that. And then uh, a couple weeks ago, we said, what do we mean when we say that there is only one God? What do we mean when we say that there is one and only God? And maybe even more importantly at times, what did the ancients, what did our ancestors mean when they made that claim in the midst of a polytheistic world? And how would that have been heard and received? Last week, we then went on to talk about what do we mean when we say that God is the Father? How do we reconcile that with maybe even our own experiences of fathers or our own experiences of those relationships in our lives? Uh, And how would that term have, have resonated within the patriarchal culture? What did they mean? And is there any way that we can recover any of that sense? And today we're going to go on, we're going to talk about what do we mean when we say that God is almighty? What do we mean when we say that God the Father is the Almighty One? Or do we mean in some sense that God possesses brute, like some sort of brute strength? Is he like the divine, incredible Hulk? 
in some way, and we don't want to make him angry, uh, but there's quite a bit of power there? Or do we say in some way that we believe that God has like extraordinary uh, abilities and can just sort of uh, make things happen and do whatever he wants? Maybe as it's parodied in that 2000, I think it was three Jim Carrey movie, Bruce Almighty, if you remember uh, him just kind of walking around and making things happen. Or is it some sort of like, you know, we believe in a being that has masked all of this power. You know, he's collected all the infinity stones and uh, we don't know what's going to happen for that. I'm done with the Marvel references. That was just, you know, two for the morning. But the term actually represents a, a range of words, a range of phrases in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Lots of words that get connected to this idea of God being almighty or all, all powerful. But the terms all refer in some way to God's greatness, to his power, to his authority, to his right to reign, and the exercise of his reign or his sovereignty in the world. One of the ways that Deuteronomy expresses it is this way. We read this just a minute ago. Because the Lord your God is the God of gods. In other words, he is supreme over any other God than anyone can conceive of or anyone worships. And he's the Lord of lords, the king of kings, the one who is the highest ranking authority around. He is the great. He is the mighty. He is the awesome God. And we keep thinking of words to attach to this because our words just never quite do it all justice. And so we think we just throw a bunch of them at it. Then we start to get a little bit of a sense of the supremacy, the sovereignty, the glory, the beauty, the holiness of our God. In philosophical terms, it's the word uh, omnipotence. that We say that God is the all-powerful one. And this idea actually sits at the center of some of the great like, theological debates that the church has had over the years. It sits at the center of that debate between the intersection of divine providence and human will between Calvinism and Wesleyan Arminianism and their conversations around these ideas. How is it that everything can take place under the guidance and control of God and at the same time humans make meaningful and consequential choices? How do those things work together? In other words, did I choose this outfit or was I predestined to always dress like a pastor? A few years ago, Sarah and I were in California and we were driving a, a section of the Pacific Coast Highway and we got out to walk around this rock formation and we're walking back to our car and this teenage girl comes up to us and she goes, I'm sorry, can I just bother you for just a second? Yeah, sure, what's going on? She's like, are you a youth pastor? <laughs> I'm like, on vacation. Like, I, I was, like, I, I'm like a associate pastor and I was a youth pastor for a while. She goes, okay. I'm like, is that it? Like, she's like, yeah, we just walked by you and I bet my dad that you were a pastor. <laughs> like, I just, I don't know what to do. So if you have any tips after the service, please come help me. This idea also sits at the center of our conversations about the problem of evil. How is it that we reconcile the existence of evil, of pain, of suffering, of death? Have we reconciled the existence of those things in the world with the belief in an almighty God? How do we hold those things to, to, together? How do we make sense of proclaiming that we believe in a God who is good and great and at the same time we live in the world where the Holocaust happens? 
How do we reconcile those things? Or maybe more personally, how do we reconcile the sense that we have in our own lives when we face tragedy, when we face suffering, when something doesn't go according to plan, when we experience deep pain, when we experience deep disappointment, when our prayers go unanswered? How do we reconcile that sense that we have? Like, well, if God can or if God could, then why didn't he? Why, why didn't that happen? And I think for a lot of us, that's the question we carry in to church, even on a consistent basis over and over again, gathering together with the people of God and worshiping while at the same time holding on to this question, God, why didn't you? Why? And left with the tension sort of in those moments of proclaiming the goodness and the love of God and believing those things wholly in our hearts at the same time wrestling with our own pain and frustration. And of course, the Bible doesn't provide simple and tidy explanations to us. As much as maybe we would like for the Bible to sort of wrap all of those things up in a bow, and as many times as we might try to like create all of our theological systems to sort of explain those things were left with a space of just saying, can we trust the God that's revealed in Scripture with all of the questions that we have? Because the Bible does reveal how it is that God uses his great power. The Bible declares that God is the Almighty One, that God is the All-Powerful One, and then reveals to us over and over and over again how this God uses that power, how God exerts his will, how God exercises his reign, which is actually a pressing concern for us as well. It's a concern about power that's grown in recent years, that as we have continued to think and learn from the situations where there has been abuses of power in nearly every arena of society as we are increasing our awareness and calling people to account for the way that they used power to hurt other people. And as we're leveraging even significant concerns or critiques of power and how it's gained and how it's used in our world, we're wrestling with how is it that power should be properly used And how do we think about that in terms of God? And of course, this isn't new. One of the more famous critiques of power came all the way back in 1887 in the letter that Lord Acton wrote to the Archbishop of the Church of England, where he famously said that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so we find ourselves maybe particularly as 21st century Western Americans, we are suspicious of power. We are particularly suspicious of the power of other people. Uh, We're not so much suspicious of our own power, right? Most of the time, our solutions are like, it would be different if we were in charge, right? But we're suspicious of power. And we oftentimes transfer that suspicion to God. We transfer those concerns to the all-powerful God. Can this supremely sovereign God be trusted? Can we trust him? In any conversation about power, that largely depends upon how that power is used, how that power is wielded, because the exercise of power reveals the character of the power holder. The exercise of power reveals the character of the power holder. It may be true that power corrupts, and it may be true that absolute power does corrupt people in some way, but I think we can definitely say that power uncovers Power reveals. Power reveals what's going on inside of us and reveals our character. 
and how someone uses power says something about the kind of person they are. And maybe we can also then say that how God uses power says something about the kind of God that he is. The first thing that the scriptures show us about the way that God uses power is that God exercises his power as the good father. This is maybe the most important point that the scriptures are calling this to constantly recognize that God exercises his great power as the good father who we talked about last week. Even in the Nicene Creed, one of the oldest summaries of the Christian faith, it says we believe in one God, the father, the almighty. I think it's important that father comes before almighty in this conversation. Then we actually identify God as father and then we say he is almighty. Ontologically, in God's essential nature, who God has always been, who God is eternally, is father. The Father exists eternally in loving communion with the Holy Spirit and with the Son. Before God is ever the sovereign king over his creation, he is the Father. And he creates the world and he exercises his reign in the world as Father. And this is far better than just like my dad can beat up your dad. Right? Those kind of playground conversations. We see the implication where these words get paired together. The first time they get paired together is Genesis chapter 49, or chapter 49, verse 25. By God, your Father, who supports you, and by the Almighty, who blesses you. By the Father who supports you, and the Almighty, who blesses you. Because the Almighty is also the Father, he uses his power to support, not to suppress. Because God, the Almighty, is also God the Father, he uses his power to bless and not to abuse. This is the kind of God that we see. We see this even in the first instance of that term El Shaddai that gets translated as the Almighty that many of you were introduced to by Amy Grant in the 80s or 90s or whenever that, that was. I didn't listen to Amy Grant. My wife makes me listen to Amy Grant. <laughs> Genesis 17 says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and he said to him, I am El Shaddai. I am the Almighty One. Walk with me and be trustworthy. I will make a covenant between us and I will give you many, many descendants. This is the God who exercises his power to enact covenant, to create relationship, to actually invite people in, to make promises and to give life, to give life, to give hope, to give a future. This is how God exercises his power. He exercises it as a good father. The second thing we see in the scripture is actually pretty early on is that God exercises his great power through his people. In Genesis chapter one, we're introduced to the unrivaled power of God as he creates the entire world with words. He speaks and everything comes into existence. And then God does the unexpected thing, even the risky thing, even the thing at times that we think, I wish you had not done that. I wish you had not taken that move. God creates humans. We're not so much upset with that, with the fact that he creates them in his image and he commissions them to rule on his behalf. Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Then, then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us. Why? Why in our image? So that they may take charge 
of the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock of the earth and all the crawling things on the earth. See, when we see a picture of God's power, we see that God doesn't centralize power. He doesn't control it. He shares it. This is like a dad inviting his kids into the family business. Come and work with me. Come and do this with me. I built all of this for us. Let's continue it together. Let's see it flourish together. Come and work with me. Participate with me. Come into this great and significant work. Co-reign, co-rule with me in this place. This is a God who shares his power with his people. The God who also delegates and powers. He doesn't just sort of like say, go do this and doesn't give us the resources to do it. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 makes this really clear. Rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He places his very spirit inside of us as the people of God. In doing so, it's like he transfers his power to us. He shares it with us. Friends, you have been empowered by God himself, by the Almighty One, the one whose power is unsurpassed, has empowered you. And the invitation then is to use whatever power it is that God has shared with us, whatever influence he has given us, whatever resources and skills and intellect and perspective and whatever things and opportunities, whatever it is that he's given us, The invitation is to wield that power, to bear his image in a way that actually reflects on the good father. That people might actually see us in those places and say, you know, it's actually easy for me to imagine a God who does good things with the influence that he has in the world. Because I see his people doing the same thing. Think for a moment about those places that you have that. Where you have influence, where you have power, where you have significance. It may not be as much as you like. It may not be as much as you hope. It may not be as much as someone else in the situation. But with the power that you do have, how are you using it? Are you using it in a way that actually reflects the way that God uses his power? And maybe one of the clear indications of that is are we using our power to empower others? Are we sharing it? Are we elevating other people? Are we helping them to come alongside the work? Are we helping them to flourish? Are we committed to seeing them grow and flourish and excel? Or are we only only concerned with having things our way and seeing us, us holding that power tightly and controlling it in order to manipulate situations and only in our favor? The third thing that we see about God and his power is that God exercises his great power on behalf of the most vulnerable. Over and over and over again in the scriptures, this is what we see about who God is. Last week, when we were talking about uh, the idea of a father in the ancient world, we we recognized that in the ancient world, if any member of a father's house, if any member of a household fell into trouble, 
whether they fell into poverty or famine or war or someone did a great injustice against them or maybe they fell into sin or rebellion or maybe they just encountered the difficult circumstances that happen inside of a world that is waiting redemption. If anything happened to any member of a family, then it was the father's responsibility to come and to rescue that person, to leverage all of his strength and all of his resources to rescue his kids. And so in our case, our father is the almighty. Our father is the one who has incomparable power. And what we see in the scripture is that he constantly uses his strength to come to the aid of those in need. Deuteronomy chapter 10 puts it this way, because the Lord your God is the God of all gods, because he is the Lord of all lords, because he is the great and the mighty and the awesome God who doesn't play favorites and doesn't take bribes, because he is the all-powerful one, what does he do? Well, he enacts justice for orphans and widows, and he loves immigrants, and he gives them food and clothing. How is it that God uses his great power? He uses it on behalf of those who are the most vulnerable. And in the ancient world, this was those who were orphaned or widowed or immigrants. We talked about this last week. They were separated from a father's household, and so they experienced a kind of acute vulnerability. They required a particular kind of care. And so God is constantly commanding the people of God to use their power in a way that reflects his by caring for the acute needs of those in their community, by being the kind of people who care and use our strength to help other people. And the beautiful thing about God is is that the more we read the scriptures, we recognize that we're all vulnerable, that we're all in need, and that we're all his kids. That we see these particular acute places, but as we look at the grand sweep of Scripture, we see that we're all in need. We're all God's kids. And the Father comes for all of us. As you think about maybe even your own situation this morning, your great need. What is that right now? If you were just to say, my great need in this time, in this season, in the situation that I find myself in, my great need is this. Do you trust that the Father is coming into that need on your behalf? That the Father is coming. It may not be in the time, it may not be in the way that we want or that we expect. But the good news of the scriptures is that God is bringing his power into all of our great needs. And he invites us to just keep looking to keep waiting and to keep expecting to be surprised at how he'll show up in the middle of that situation. And normally, he'll show up through one another. It's normally how he shows up. It's not through burning bushes, but through your buddy next door. It's most often how he shows up in those places. The fourth thing that we see about the way God exercises his power is that God exercises his great power to enact the justice. In order to rescue the oppressed, God has to stop oppressors. In order to enact justice, God has to actually judge evil and condemn sin. He has to do both. This is why Mary breaks out in song and she says, he has shown great strength with his arm and he has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations and he has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly and he's filled the hungry with good things and he sent away the rich empty-handed. And this is the point in Mary's song where we all get a little bit uncomfortable. Like, did we have to like sing that song? 
So when we think about God's power, when we think about God's power in order to rescue or to save or redeem, like, yes. And even when we say, like, God's power to enact justice, we're like, yes. But when we realize that in order to enact justice, God also has to judge, that's the place where we get a bit squeamish. Really, can, we, can we have the one without the other? Is there a way? This is people. We don't really like people telling, well, we don't really like anyone else telling us what's right or wrong or good or evil or true or false. We like to do that for other people, but we don't really like anybody else doing that for us. Ever since the garden, this has been the human predicament. So I will eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, i.e. I want to define those things for myself. We prefer to do that. And so we like justice. We just wish it could happen without judgment. Wish it could happen without calling things sin or calling things evil. But part of the proclamation that God is almighty means that God has both the power to bring justice and the authority to judge the world's. He has the authority as the creator to judge the world and the power to act to make it right. So the question for us as the people of God when we say that God is almighty is do we trust the good father with that great power? Do we trust God to sort all of that out? Do we trust him to say what is right and wrong and good and evil and true and false? And do we trust his way of bringing about justice into the midst of the situation? And if we don't trust him, who do we trust to do that? And maybe if we really start getting honest about that, we might find actually the only person I know that I can trust to do that is the God revealed in Jesus. And I'm going to trust all of that over to him. As the worship team comes, the last thing that we can say about God's power in Scripture is this, is that God exercises his great power paradoxically. He exercises it in weakness. That when we think about God's great power, when we want to know what God's great power looks like, what it means for God to do his greatest work, Paul tells us to look in the most unexpected place. He tells us to look at the cross. 1 Corinthians 1, says this, Jews ask for signs, big displays of power. Greeks look for wisdom, powerful ways of thinking about the world, but we preach Christ crucified. This is a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power. And Christ is God's wisdom. This is because the foolishness of God, something that doesn't make sense to us, and we're like, God, are you kidding me? It's wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. See, the greatest display of God's power in history was not creation. Powerful as that is. It was not the exodus. Powerful as that is. It was not the Red Sea. Powerful as that was. It was not Sinai and all the thunder and the lightning. It was the cross. It was the cross. Because through the cross, God demonstrated that his power is great enough to raise the dead. Through the cross, he, re- he demonstrated that his power is great enough to actually repurpose the greatest evils in the world. 
to actually somehow use it to accomplish his divine purpose, to actually take what others meant for evil and to turn it for good. And so however we approach the problem of evil and pain and suffering and death in the world, we're invited as the people of God to approach it from and through the cross and the cross alone. I don't know how to make sense of all of this, but what I know is that God's power is at work in the most inexplicable, inexplicable and unimaginable situations. That even when God's power doesn't seem to be present, it is actually at its greatest. So in other words, for each of us, it means that in your weakness, in whatever place that you find yourself feeling weak and feeble, lost and alone, Maybe it's the place that God's power is most present in your life. That his power is being made perfect. Perhaps it is in your lack that God's grace is showing itself to be sufficient. Perhaps it's in your suffering and in your pain that God is drawing most near to you. Just as he did on the cross. Perhaps when God seems most absent, most powerless, most impotent, most unavailable or unaware. Perhaps it is in those moments in our lives that God is somehow the most present. And somehow over the course of time and in some way that we don't know, we can't predict and we can't control and maybe we'll never fully understand that maybe God will show himself to be great enough to do the impossible in that situation to be great enough to raise you from the dead, to be great enough to show his power in your weakness, to be great enough to turn whatever you ever eat, whatever evil you've experienced into something wonderful and beautiful and rich and true and good. And it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt now. And it doesn't mean that it's all okay now. And it doesn't mean that everything is just suddenly better. But it does mean that we can trust the God revealed in Jesus, that his power may be present in places that we don't see it. We can cast ourselves on the grace of Jesus and to say that in and through the cross, you showed yourself to be stronger than anything. And so as I face my own crosses, would you show yourself to be strong and almighty and holy and just and true? Would you come to my aid. Would you stand with me this morning?